Hi, I'm Mike Asinald and welcome to the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge's AC23 Plus Artist Legacy Series podcast. This is a series where we talk to artists who are doing amazing things in the areas of the arts, including performance, education, production, as well as arts advocacy. We record this series in the Virginia and John Nolan Black Box Studio, as well as in the Jan and Bill Grimes Recording Studio here at the Cary Siraj Community Arts Center. Be sure to visit artsbr.org for more information on all the great things we are doing here at the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. Hope you enjoyed the podcast series and thanks for tuning in.
Always, always, always glad to be here, Mike. The great Roger Paul. Oh man, glad Pleasure to, to be here. here man. Yeah, man, I'm glad to be here, man. Glad to be here. Well, listeners, um, welcome to Roger Paulin, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Then we're going to talk. Uh, this might take a while because he has a resume that's uh, you could. It's a novel, basically. <laughs> but anyway, no. <laughs> the Reverend, as we call him, is obviously a saxophonist, as you just heard, also a clarinetist, which I think you will hear later mm -hmm. on in this podcast, um, an arranger, producer, clinician, master class, educator, uh, professor. He's, you are uh, teaching currently at Southern University, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. we, we will get into that. Um, I'm going to make it short because, again, this could go on forever, but some of the people he's worked with. Very impressive. Uh, Mr. John Legend, Harry Connick Jr., Aaron Neville, Alan Toussaint, Maceo Parker, Fred Wesley, Christian McBride, Trombone Shorty, Wynton Marcellus. I'm going to stop there because we got, again, I could be here forever. <laughs> <laughs> but if that's not enough to impress you, I don't know what is. Um, or as a friend of mine says, if, the, if that doesn't light your fire, you got wet wood. <laughs> Yeah, like. <laughs> All right, so the last 10 years, um, Broderick has served on the faculty of the Louis Armstrong Summer Jazz Camp of New Orleans, which I've had the privilege of being part of um, mm -hmm. years ago, uh, which is the longest-running, minority-owned, and operated music organization that serves public and private school students of New Orleans and surrounding communities. Uh, Pedigree-wise, uh, the Reverend is... So you got your undergrad from Southern University in New Orleans, mm -hmm. and that was underneath uh, Edward Kidd Jordan yeah. and Mr. Roger Dixon, yeah. Dickerson. Absolutely, yeah. Great composer. Mm -hmm. Master's degree at Louisiana State University, and you're currently working on your doctorate at Louisiana State University. Yeah, I'm entering my, uh, my third year of the uh, Ph.D. program at uh, LSU. So It's exciting stuff, man. It's yeah, sometimes <laughs> it can be a... You know, and that's in You're addition to big yeah, signals on that yeah, that's a, you know, in addition to gigs and other stuff. But I mean, it's cool. I I totally enjoy it, though, Mike. You know, so yeah, yeah. So so, how, when will you have that finished up? Likely, uh, hopefully, I'm gonna say within the next year and a half, so to speak, because you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm you know, I'm 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 at a point where is I'm working, I'm already doing the job that I'm going to school for, being at Southern, right. you know, uh, revamping the jazz program is, uh, is, is, is really cool and I think it's needed. So to be able to work on a PhD at LSU and still go right across town and, and be at Southern is really, uh, is really a win-win situation. So I would right. probably say maybe a year, year and a half, mm. uh, most of the coursework uh, I'm done with, and so I'll just be working on my uh, the dissertation and whatnot, you know. So I'm 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 really want to take my time with it, make sure it gets you know gets done. So well, and I have to think that that's a you know as opposed, I guess, to the traditional way of getting your doctorate, then going to get a job teaching, most likely the university, to be teaching in the university and getting your doctorate. Uh, you know, I think some of the I would guess the more poignant things you're learning in the doctoral program is makes it even more that that more interesting since you're you're doing it you're parlaying that information already to the kids yeah uh, 
I didn't, and it's, it's interesting you said not traditional. I went back, when I decided to go back to school, it was like at the start of the pandemic uh, to pursue my master's. I was 47, 48. Yeah. And so as I went through that, I became interested in the um, in a PhD program as we started to emerge from uh, the you know what was happening with the pandemic. Uh, I knew the the other directors of, at Southern University, Harry Anderson yep. and Herman Jackson, mm -hmm. and they called me one day and said, "Listen, we want you to we want you to get your resume together. We want you to apply for the job." I mean, and I said, "Okay." And I was uh, already at, uh, at at LSU and maybe my first year, yep. almost completing that. And uh, and and it really opened up. Um, it, you know, it's it's just a really great opportunity because, like you said, the things, the concepts that I'm learning at LSU in terms of teaching and and what I'm studying, what my interest is, pursuing the PhD, I'm actually doing that work right, right. at Southern. So I'm able to go ahead and do the theory and the practical at the same time. So it's really, you know, it's it's really cool. I'm my uh, my mentors. And at LSU, really think it's cool as well. So it's like, yeah, uh, it's it is in fact a lot of work, though. Oh, trust I me. No, I, I mean, and this is in addition to gigs and other things and whatnot. You know, to make sure that I put out quality work. So, yeah. but I'm enjoying the process anyway. So it's cool. Well, and I think that's a big part of it too is enjoying the process. You know, um, I saw on some maybe a meme or something recently. You know, it's um, if your goal is. is your sense that you're going to be happy once it's done and you reach the end. Well, you know, you should do your best at enjoying the whole path, the whole process, because it's really never ending, especially Absolutely. in what we do on creative music. I think it's just never ending. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. I was looking at a caption the other day uh, about uh, either um, LeBron James, and the caption says, I just continue to work on my basics. I mean, mm -hmm. the the basics, the fundamental concepts of of being of of basketball. Same thing of when we go through the same thing. The fundamental concepts in music, Absolutely. scales and whatnot. I mean, learning that. So now, of course, we have you know we we're able and fortunate enough to be able to play uh, professionally with you know with a, with a lot of well known artists and whatnot. But it really goes back to having those key concepts down and still working on those fundamentals. And I think sometimes some students, uh, they lose sight of that sometimes. They look at the big picture and like, wow, I'd like to do that. But the big picture is really just, it comes from the very small things. Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's, well, it's, what's kind of even more funny is I was going to kind of wait to get into the educational part of it, but the reality is no matter what we're talking about, the educational part seeps in because it's always part of it. Yeah. But... Um, we did something the other day at a school, sort of a jazz outreach, if you will. Mm -hmm. But what's funny is I did a similar one maybe a month ahead of time before that with one of our colleagues, uh, Doug Stone, saxophonist. Mm -hmm. yeah. But both of you were doing the same thing. Like before we went inside, when I was with Doug, we, he was <laughs> I was getting out of my vehicle to go to where we're going. And he's in his truck, and I could hear him. He's in his cab of his truck doing long tones. This is a guy, you know, like you, who can play just about anything, and he's practicing his long tones. Yeah. And then when we were in the classroom, getting gearing, kind of sort of gearing up to do our thing, you're doing long tones, you know. Yeah. And those, like, I think you're absolutely right. Those fundamentals never, 
you tend to, I think we tend to go back to them constantly. Yeah. That's the, you know, the, you know, that's the fundamental concept, particularly as horn players. Uh, and Doug and I talk about this all the time. The the horn players that we idolize, such as uh, Cannonball Adel, John Coltrane, uh, um, and, and countless others, it wasn't so much what they played. I mean, that was a part of it. But initially, what captured us was their sound. And the sound comes from those fundamental concepts. Yeah. I mean, long tones. And it, I mean, just constantly, constantly doing. And of course, students, uh, you know, at first, when you're first doing that or introducing that to them, uh, you know, kids, students are going to be students. They don't see the value in it. But as they stay with it, and I think one of the greatest things that students can learn is if they see an instructor doing it themselves. Instead of telling them to do it, if they see an instructor doing it all the time in the classroom, outside of the classroom, I think that kind of hopefully resonates more with students to encourage them about yeah, maybe I need to practice my long tones. Maybe I need to go back and, and keep and, and keep that in their arsenal as they get better. I'm glad you said that about tone because I would always stress that when I was teaching, even at the piano. Sometimes people think piano is you have less control over tone because there's no air going through the instrument. But um, I've learned over the years by listening to so many pianists, especially in cases where you have different pianists playing the same piano. And then you realize, oh, wow, there's a, a large array of tone you can get out of the instrument. But this tone overall, mm -hmm. what, an analogy I'd use with my students is uh, imagine the great, a great speaker like James Earl Jones or something like that. And I said, if you took someone like that and you had him reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb, he would have your interest. Yeah. Because of, of the tone, the delivery. You know, so you, you marry that with content, mm -hmm. you know, which we're always working on building our vocabulary, and then you really got something. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, in that master class we was talking, you was talking about the other day, too, is that in addition to all of the musical concepts that we study and that will help us to become better artists, um, I try to convey to students that don't take the fun out of what you're doing. That's, you know, that's a huge part of it because, you know, when I can remember when I first began playing music, I did it because it was fun. I saw my, my, my family members, my, extend, my extended family members doing it. Yeah, that was an influence, but at the core of it, I did it because it was fun. And I, I made friends with other uh, with other kids my age, that they did it, and it was fun. And, of course, some of them stayed with it, some of it didn't. And even right now, even more right now nowadays, I try to tap into that. Because if yeah. we're not having because when you're having fun, I think that's when you're most relaxed. And then that way, the music, I think, has a, has a vehicle to really get to where it could get to with people and with the musicians themselves if you don't have a point to prove, so to speak, like, you know, Look at look how fast I can play. Look at watch my watch my skills. I mean, for we're all at different levels, but if we can maybe embrace that, I think I think that would really really help in terms of you know. Well, how many shows have you done? And I know the, I already know the answer to this, but you know, just how many shows have you done where people come up afterwards and they tell you something to the extent that 
we just enjoyed seeing that y'all were having so much fun. A lot. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I, I'm, I perform with the... Uh, with the original Tuxedo Jazz Band with Gerald French. Mm -hmm. That's one of the oldest jazz bands. Matter of fact, they're celebrating 113 years this Christmas day. Wow. So that that particular band has a has a has a has a legacy that has been passed down from his grandfather. But it's traditional New Orleans music. So every Sunday and Monday we play, uh, we perform together, and it's every it's it's every week. They see the they see the camaraderie. They see the the fun that we're having among ourselves, and and we use the music, the the medium of music, and people can feel that energy. Right. You know what I'm saying? And they can feel it makes if they see we're having fun, we're relaxed, we're playing these songs, even though we've played them uh, over 30 years. The song is fresh every single time. It's not. Like, oh, it's time to make the donuts. Like, when the saints go marching in, that's what no one is know. So when we play that, we want to make that, we want that song to be played like it's played the first time, particularly for the audience, for someone that may have not experienced that. And we want them to walk away with a sense like, oh, I had a good time, that kind of thing. So. Right. Well, you mentioned New Orleans, and that kind of leads me to a chapter I wanted to ask you about. Um, you're from New Orleans. Yeah, born and raised. Can you talk a little bit to, um, you know, just the, what I would imagine would have been a huge impact on on you developing as a musician, just the culture of New Orleans. I know your family, you have family roots in music in New Orleans. So tell me how you got started in music in that city and just the impact that it had on you. Yeah, well, my uh, my father, Ernest Doc Pollen, was a, was a traditional uh, New Orleans. He was a brass band guy. Uh, he played um, on the streets of New Orleans for over 70 years. He lived to be 100 years old, and he had... Um, a large family. He had, uh, we had 13 children, 10 boys, three girls. I'm the youngest in the family that plays music in my uh, biological family. And being introduced to that introduced me to the whole idea of what New Orleans music was about because, of course, musicians attract musicians. So I was able to be introduced to Greg Stafford, Michael White, uh, uh, and, and the list just goes on and on that these guys would come to my dad's house. So, I mean, we're children, so, of course, we want to be like them right. and be with them. So that played a huge role in terms of me wanting to get out here and, and, and be a part of that. And, of course, the extended community. I mean, New Orleans is known for having... Um, I mean, hundreds of musical family. I mean, there's my family, the Pollen family. There's the Andrews family, James Andrews, Tr Trombone Shorty. There's the Boutte family, uh, uh, the Vappy family. I mean, the Brooks family. I mean, it just goes on and on. And because of that, that connection, everybody knows our network is small. I mean, you know, so, and we know everybody. And so because of that, uh, that connection, you know, everybody talks. So, you know, in the community, that actually served as a as a, an incubator for me growing up, learning how to play different, being introduced to different types of music, such as brass band music through my father. Of course, classic R&B music as well, uh, big band music, uh, in school bands. I mean, the I mean the uh, the school uh, bands was uh, was an extension of of our family as well, in elementary school, middle school, uh, high school, all the way through college. Hmm. Um, well, and just 
I can't imagine what, or maybe you realized it later on in life. I, I guess when you're a kid, you're not really thinking about these things. But all of the, uh, the oral intake that you're you're taking in, like for example, you have all these great musicians coming over to to work with your dad at the house, and you're hearing uh, the concept, yeah, how the music's supposed to be played, just by hanging around the house. Yeah, I mean, how 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 special of a gift is that? It was. I mean, Mike. It was. It. You're right. As I as I look back on it, because I it, know I didn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and and you know that's one of the things that makes New Orleans so unique. Oh, should I say it makes New Orleans one of the most unique places to be able to not only experience music but to live it and 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 the whole the whole vibe, the food, all of that, the culture. I mean, just listening to those guys talk, without them even playing an instrument, yeah. that influenced the way that I would that I interpreted music, just listening to the stories that they would uh, talk about, you know. And uh, uh, I always I always share this story with you know with students when I was uh, attending uh, NOLCA, which is the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, where Ellis Marcellus was the jazz director. I got turned. I was in maybe my tenth, eleventh grade. I got turned on to. Uh, uh, to uh, Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, and I'm cutting my teeth. I'm right. listening, you know. And of course, I'm at home. I'm going on my gigs with my dad, and I'm playing. I'm playing this stuff. I'm trying it out and whatnot. And I always say this: the greatest thing that my dad did for me was when he fired me. <laughs> I was like, I, and he would, you know, and he was like, he said, and 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 I'll never forget him. He told me, he said, no. I think this music is beneath you. And he stopped hiring me. And I went to my mom crying, and I'm like, Mom, you know, my mom said, well, clearly you're not doing something right, so I didn't get involved with that. So, but but what it did was what I thought was my 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 father was being uh too much of a strict disciplinarian, that was the best lesson that I needed to learn because I had to learn how to play or perform traditional New Orleans music at the same time venturing out into the music of John Coltrane and Charlie Parker. Even though it's all related, of course I was a student and that was the best lesson for me. So when my dad did begin to hire me again, Oh, Mike, I learned how to play traditional yeah. Wallace music. So, I mean, and, you know, it's you know, just those little subtleties was was just one of many lessons that I learned about how to weave in and out musically, in terms of what to do, what not to do, how to be, how not to be. So, I, I learned that lesson very early on. Well, and that's such a unique thing. Um, I, I always tell people when we're talking about saxophone players in the area broader New Orleans and et cetera area, that I can't think of anyone who has such a um, firm understanding of so many genres of music. And, and, and that's what's basically what you're talking to. So you know you play traditional jazz um, like it's supposed to be played, but then you jump over and you're playing an R&B gig where it sounds like you've been doing that for years, which you have, mm -hmm. um, and then a more modern jazz type thing. You know, it's just the... Of course, the gospel thing, that tradition. So that I think that that is one of the things that New Orleans is really special in that if you if you grow up in that and you allow yourself to be um, taken into all those different avenues, if you mm -hmm. will, um, you come out as an incredibly well-rounded musician. Yeah, 
And you know, and and what and what happens is is that since being introduced uh, around all those different types of music, at the same time, you're still practicing the craft. You're still practicing those fundamental concepts of the scales and uh, your finger technique and whatnot. Because once you start doing gigs, it's very, very easy to lose sight of the concept. So for me personally, I've always wanted to do other things. And so... You know, maybe just by wanting that, wanting to be able to do those things, it it, it was a requirement for me to to keep the the keep my fundamentals in and you know in check. Even as I was beginning like uh, performing music, writing music, I was always always involved in in, in school, going to school and teaching and whatnot. So uh, I always wanted to make sure I you know I wanted to keep my skills as sharp as I possibly could. So can you even remember your first gig? I bet you, you oh, can. Oh, absolutely, Mike. Man, I remember. Listen, it was 1979. I was in sixth grade. Okay. It was Mardi Gras Day. Uh, saxophone player got sick at the last minute. He called my dad and said that he couldn't make it. And I think I knew two songs. I think I knew When the Saints Go Marching In and maybe Second Line. I was an alto saxophone player. And we, he said, my dad, got, he said, get up, it's time to go. I'm like, go where? <laughs> so it's Mardi Gras day. I'm typically ready parading all day. So we got get dressed and, you know, we do this uh, Mardi Gras, of course, theme gig. I mean, most of the day parading in the streets and whatnot. And then at the end of the day, my dad paid me. I was like. Oh, 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 we didn't, we didn't. <laughs> so, so that, you know, and, and, and when he did that, so, but that whole experience, that was my, that was my first gig. And, and I can remember I had knew nothing about harmony. All I knew was what I knew, the B flat concert scale from school. So most of the songs that they did was in B flat, E flat and F. So particularly in B flat, as a as an alto saxophone player, the only thing I knew was to play two down. Now, when I meant two down in my mind, in my sixth grade mind, the tonic for me is going to be G, which is B flat concert. So two down, that would be E for me, which would be the six. So Mike, play a play a B flat six chord if you don't mind. And most of the chords that my dad's band was playing just play a, a, a B-flat triad. When I played that six, everybody was like, oh. And again, I was in sixth grade. I had no idea what I was doing, but that's, but that's what I knew. But what I heard, it was different from the triad. And so... So that, you were naturally hearing more extended harmony. I sure was. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, but that started the whole thing of me wanting to find out why this chord sounds like it was. I mean, even as a, being in sixth grade at that time. So, yeah, it's, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> well, um, let's play another tune. Yeah, man. Um, one we kind of mentioned before was, uh, an old traditional tune called uh, Found a New Baby. Let's try that. Mm. 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 Uh, uh. 
Yeah, Mike. The Reverend is in the house. A little Lord bit, man. Now, Mike, now you know I've only been seriously playing the clarinet six years. So it's a really huge talk, talk really to me about the clarinets. Okay. Man, listen, my older brother Ricky uh Paulin was a was a clarinet player. In the family, we had everyone playing different instruments. So he was the clarinet player. And he would be playing in the French quarter with a lot of different bands and whatnot. So was it a conscious effort to not play a clarinet since he was playing it? Or? Yeah, actually it was because like I said, my I I didn't hear it, bro. I was like Mm, no, nah, it, it didn't. It didn't resonate with me. Well, he died like about five, six years ago, and I never, you know, I would play it every now and again, but not nothing. Mm, it, it, I, again, I just didn't hear it, and I don't know if it, if if it's his spirit, but like about three months after he passed, it just suddenly I just heard what I want to sound like on clarinet. And I was like, it was it was like an oh yeah moment. I was like, oh. So prior to that, because I know, I mean, you you work so much with so many people. If someone had said, okay, this gig involves tenor saxophone and clarinet, you would just not take it? So, at, at that time, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Because like I said, I really, I had done it in school because I mean, that was a thing that, that that, that Kid Jordan required all saxophone players to learn, you know. But it really wasn't my thing because I just didn't hear it. I, it the sound of the clarinet wasn't something that, that, was, that, that, I, that I was interested in at that time. But it's a funny thing. Over the, over the course of time, you know, I would, uh, I, I would do it. I would play it sparingly. Um, but not to the extent of really putting just the time in. Because when you when you really want to do something, you're going to put the time in to do it because you want to get good at it. And that's what happened with me with the clarinet like six, five, six years ago. Once I heard what I wanted to sound like, I just really started working toward that end. So I'm like 46, 47 years old at the time. And, and again, I tell this, tell this to students that, Age doesn't matter. I mean, I was squeaking and squawking just like, uh, you know, just like a kid, just like a beginner. Even having had experience, the clarinet made me a, uh, you know, it's a, I, I, it's a very unforgiving instrument. Um, but, you know, I, in, I really enjoy the sound. It's opening up um, a, a different kind of a thing for me. Not to be... Uh, in in uh, in in the spirit of of great traditional New Orleans clarinetists, that th uh, that happens too. But also, I want to make sure that technically, I'm on it. So even if I want to do something else on the clarinet, I I, I want to have the technical ability to do that. And really, at the end of it, I'm really having fun playing the clarinet. So right. So yeah. No. So I remember you mentioning, I guess back around that time. Um, you you started studying more. Was it with Griff, Griff Campbell that was helping you with, or when you got when you were starting your master's degree? Is that when you kind of jumped more into the class or the the clarinet? Or was it so yes, yes. Uh, when I began uh, my master's at LSU, um, Griffin Campbell, Doctor Griffin Campbell, is an is a world class uh, saxophonist. Uh, Branford Barcella suggested that I take lessons right. with uh, with Griff. And I did, and that really helped me to refine the way that I would that I play the saxophone, to, uh, you know, to to improve it. Um, because see, some sometimes when you when you're an older student and you're going back to school, sometimes 
you, it, it, it's easy to have a tendency to say, to have the idea like, oh, well, I already have the experience. What can I learn from school? So I took the opposite, I took the opposite approach. I went in eyes wide open. I'm, I was like, what can I learn to improve when I already know? Right. Or, or improve upon, with even having experience, I wanted to be respectful to the class and to the, and, 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 and to the whole process of, of just getting better. What can I get from somebody that's younger? And, and that's what happened. So it's like uh, studying with Griff, it made me realize some things that I could have been improving on over the years. And I just didn't know. Right. So, right. you know, so it was like, oh, okay. So again, also um, being around other uh, 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 professional um, students, uh, professional musicians, I mean, I mean, some of those students, man, they would, pl they would play some of the most difficult pieces. And I'm like, my God. And I'm like, so that really inspired me to seek out, make friendships with some students that were my children's age, like 20-something, right. 20, 20, 20, you know, 20-something-year-old students, you know, being open. Oh, you know, how do y'all do this? You know, what's going on here? You know, I, I just wanted to find out ways how they process information so I could make, apply it, and maybe apply it to me so I can get better. Well, and I'm sure in that environment, um, they had to learn quite a bit, too. You yeah. Know, let's say, for example, you're in a jazz ensemble, and... You know, again, just the years of experience, concept, and all that. The kid sitting next to you has got to be taking it all in, or hopefully he is. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I mean, I, like I said, I, I was, I was able to bring some experience to that, but I wanted to make sure, even though I was a student, I, I wanted to be very careful and not come across as the guy that was telling them what to do. Right. So it was just more, it, I, I developed the thing where as I, I say these are just suggestions. And when they would hear it, it, was, it would be like, oh, okay. Because I mean, you know, so, you know being able to uh, modify how you introduce things to students is a really delicate process because you don't want to be offensive, but also you want them to, you know, to be able to, 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 to take some of the concepts and apply it because a lot of what we're doing is not, you're not going to learn in a book. And that's where the rubber meets the road, because after you get your degree and all of that stuff, particularly playing jazz, your degree is not going to help you on stage. Mm -hmm. you got to be able to make that adjustment in the moment and be able to hopefully contribute to what's happening musically. Well, you know, for people who are watching this, particularly students who are looking to get into this, maybe they're just starting to get into it, but coming from someone who's... You know, well, we're both the same age. You're 55. Yeah. Um, who's been doing it so long, but so long successfully. I mean, you've worked with so many people, and you you continue to work with as, as I guess as many people as you want. You know, you can. I know the calls are coming. I guess you just decide who you when you how much you want to do and whatnot. But <clears throat> I guess the where I'm getting at with this is, what advice would you give? a young student coming up, getting into this business, you know, I think the assumption would be, yes, you have to be able to play your instrument. But mm -hmm. what are some of the other maybe less tangible things that you would say um, to have a successful career in a freelance business? Um, and we talked about this the other day, Mike. I think uh, one of the things that's not talked about in, uh, in music schools is your attitude. Mm -hmm. Be easy to work with. 
trust me, because there are thousands, uh, tens, probably tens of thousands of musicians around the world that are great musicians. They are fan phenomenal musicians. But maybe their attitude could use some improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, 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 and, 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 that's just, and that's just the nature of any business because a lot of times the work that, that we do, you know, a lot of what we do is, uh, you know, we do gigs with other people and whatnot. And I think part of that is because being able to be respectful to whatever the environment is and who the, who the, uh, the contractors would be. I think being easy to work with is one, is, 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 a, is a concept that's not talked about a lot. Because if you show up and you're that person that's that that thinks that everybody has to bend to what you would like to do, that's not a good policy to have. And trust me, in our network, Mike, you know, people talk. Yeah, people yeah. talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> word travels. Uh, Positive word, just as well as negative word, travels pretty quick. Yeah. It, it, and like you said earlier, this is the worldwide music community is kind of a small community. Yeah. You know, you're not that far removed from, you know, probably two or three people removed from the guy playing in Seattle. Absolutely. You know, just the people you end up knowing yeah. and so forth. Absolutely. You know, one other thing too, Mike, is that we have had the opportunity to play with a lot of people. I mean, you've done work with Terrence Blanchard, a lot of people. But that work doesn't happen all the time. Right. So that so again, being able to be okay from from a from a I, I guess maybe from a, a, a personal standpoint, some days you're gonna get that, and some days you're not gonna get that. Don't go on a job and complain. Mm -hmm. Nobody. I mean, if once you have accepted a gig, even if things don't go or are not perfect, it would help. To keep it to yourself. If you're complaining all the time, all the time, all the time, that affects the environment. And even though people may not tell you, right? But it does affect them. But complaining is not going to help in a moment. And I myself had to learn that. I really did, Mike. I, I, you know, I would go on gigs and be complaining about why they're not doing this and why they're not doing that. I had to learn that even in my complaining, it didn't help in the moment. It didn't help whatever it's environment or situation I was in. And we're totally talking about, we're totally taking out the concept of, of uh, musical concepts now. We're talking about attitude-wise. Right, right, absolutely. Well, um, we've talked a lot about education, a lot about you know, growing up, playing this music. You're, you're on quite a few records. Can you talk to that a little bit? I know many of those, and I say records, just recording, let's put it that way, because the medium's changed so much. But yeah. uh, many of those are yours, the albums that you produced, and you know what's, what's been going on there. Uh, yeah, I've actually, um, I'm actually doing my first complete clarinet record this year. Um, I'm going to put it out hopefully sometime before uh, Jazz Fest 2024. So I'm really excited about that. Um, uh, my first, I would you would say, I would say maybe jazz record. I um, mean, you helped me with uh, back in 2017 mm -hmm. uh, called "Slow but Steady." And Was it that long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, um, and 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 now I can listen to it. For the first couple of years, I didn't. You know, that's how we are. Right, you know. Right. 
So, you know, I was able to have uh, include a who's who of New Orleans musicians in, in our community, Baton Rouge area. And, you know, so that's out. Um, I'm planning on doing a, uh, doing a Christmas record coming up. Uh, and you know the whole thing about that, about the you know the idea of pushing it forward. And sometimes people ask me, say, Roderick, you're involved in all these different things. How do you do it? I really related to my mother. My mother always told us. She said, Roderick, whatever you plan on doing, do it. You may not be able to do all that you find out to do. At least find out what you can do. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing for me. So with music. Um, I've decided that I'm going to do everything or try to do everything I can, regardless as to what the style, what the medium is. I'm, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to do my best. And at the same time, I'm going to have fun with it because there's going to come a day that, you know, that we're not going to be able to be as as mobile as we are now. And yeah, so yeah. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. You know what I'm saying, Mike? Yeah. So, yeah. But I know we were talking prior to uh, rolling the tape, so to speak, um, about a similar thing and, you know, just enjoying what you're doing. And when you're in a performance situation, how important that is, how important of an ingredient that is in making the music translate to the audience. Like, when the audience sees that you're having fun and you truly are, they, it just brings them in. It yeah. gives them a better experience. Absolutely. And you know, that whole thing about attitude. And also, I would, you know, I would say part of that that goes into that, and I tell this to horn players a lot of times, less is more. If you are, you're in a, a performance situation with the rhythm section, piano, bass, and drums, they are playing constantly. So it helps as a horn player or horn players to keep that idea in mind. If you have a bunch of horn players on stage and you got four or five horn players, you don't want to be taking solos six and seven choruses because the rhythm section guys, they may they may be looking like, bro, what you doing? <laughs> I mean, really. So, so it helps to for, for horn players to understand that less is more. And that concept, Mike, believe it or not, came from hanging around those old men when I was young, listening to them tell these stories. Those old men used to tell us, you got two choruses to say what you need to say. <laughs> and that's it. So that was it. So you had two choruses, nothing more, nothing less, and that was it. Right. And, and, and so you had to get to whatever musical ideas that you wanted to get to. But what it did was my mother... I always, my mother would say, and I, in, in my youth, I used to say, well, mom, I don't, I don't think that's fair. I, I want to play what I want to play. And she would say, Roderick, you have a square. Do what you can in that square. Mm-hmm. And she always taught me that. Right. She said, can you do anything about the square? I would be like, no do what you can in the square. That always made sense to me, Mike, and I always remember those small things, man, you know, so. What do and they say? The, uh, the older we get, the, uh, the smarter our parents get. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, so. Well, um, 
Well, tell me what's coming up. So let, I'm going to jump back to the education thing for a minute. So you're over at Southern, and tell me some of the things you're trying to do over there. And what's the uh, we're rebooting, is. revamping the the uh, the jazz program at at Southern because it was under the um, you know great clarinetist Elvin Baptiste, who had it uh, for many years, and a lot of uh, great phenomenal musicians such as yourself, uh, Troy Davis, yeah. uh, Reginald Veal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brantford Marcellus, Donald Harrison. They come, they, you know, they were students of of, of that program at, at Southern University. So that's what we're doing right now. We're in a, um, you know, we're myself and my colleague, John Gray, we're revamping the, uh, you know, the, the jazz program to uh, to help students uh, understand not only just jazz music, but just good music, R&B. Yeah. Because what we're doing right now, we every semester we have a theme that we're going to be working on. Ironically, this coming spring semester, we're going to be focusing on the music of New Orleans. Um, the Gen Conference, uh, the Jazz Education Network Conference yeah. is coming up, is coming to town. Uh, I'm going to be on a panel with Sean Jones, uh, Lonnie Davis, the who's the uh, president of Gen. Uh, also with Wycliffe Gordon and some wow. other people, we're going to be talking about the how African American students can learn jazz or some things that uh, that can be implemented in jazz programs across the board to get students maybe more interested in jazz mm -hmm. uh, at this point. Because a lot of students nowadays, what I notice, Mike, they're into the like the neo soul and R and B, and that's cool. Yeah. But yeah. that has some roots in the basic concepts of jazz music. Absolutely. So being able to introduce that a little bit at a time and being able to show the, the correlation, oh, this comes from that. You know what I'm saying? So I think that helps a lot. And, and the way that you do it. So again, being not only uh, uh, teachers of jazz, but being performers of jazz. So now when they see us on social media and whatnot, hopefully that, that sparks interest in terms of them getting better themselves because, you know, they see Mr. Gray and Mr. Pollan doing it, so, yeah. Right. And would you say that's kind of, when you said that, it made me think of, in so many ways, now you might be an exception because, you know, you grew up in the tradition that you did, but with so many musicians, you're into what you're into, and then you start almost working backwards. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, well, this guy who I'm really into was into this guy a generation before, and you keep working backwards, and then you find all these influences that they, they had and the person before that had, and all of a sudden you're into all those people. Yeah, That's absolutely. That's a big part of it. You know, the other thing is that, you know, and, I, and I try to convey to students that there is nothing new underneath the sun. That's an old concept. So, again, it speaks to going back to, uh, you, know, going, you know, going back and, and seeing what some of those guys was dealing with. Because we're still, like you said, dealing with concepts that I find extremely difficult to, to, to process listening to music that's from the 20s. I, I, I listen to those old, you know, to the clarinet players, Edmund Hall and whatnot, you know, uh, Alphonse Piku, for example, in terms of the things that they were doing on the instrument back then is you know it's 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 just totally phenomenal trying trying to look at it in this mon in the 21st century and I'm quite sure it you know it goes the whole gamut but at the, also at the you know at the end of the day um, hopefully being able to you know and and the idea of education necessarily doesn't happen in the classroom all the time we're talking about education this process listening and researching what 
what it is that you're into, uh, what drew you to them, what were they thinking somewhat? I mean, mm -hmm. transcribing solo so you can get a visual look at what they were playing so you can break it down and start dealing with the harmony and whatnot. And I know I'm going down a rabbit hole, but yeah, that's, you know, you know and, and that's only done, Mike, if you want to get better. And that's one thing I've really come to understand that over the years that we're all at different levels. And being able to respect where someone is, I mean, that's really, really uh, important, you know, and because sometimes some people may not, they want to, they may not be into that. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, meeting a student where they are, I, it has really resonated with me in terms of how can I introduce this concept? I need them to get it, but I don't want to force it on them. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, like I've mentioned before, uh, you, you know, you work with so many people, you're all over the place, but if, if someone wants to hear you kind of maybe mention some of the regular things that you do in New Orleans where people can hear you. Sure. Uh, on every Sunday and uh, Monday, I am at the Mahogany Jazz Club. Uh, that's located in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the heart of the French Quarter at 125 Charter Street. Uh, Sunday night, it's a, it's a quartet. It features Gerald French on drums, Richard Moulton on bass, uh, Paul Longstreth on piano. And we do a wide, wide variety of music on Sunday. We do everything, R&B. You know, we even do some classical stuff. You know, it's, it's really, we did this thing. So um, on Mondays uh, at the same club, it's I perform with the uh, with the original Tuxedo Jazz Band. That's, that's Gerald is the band leader on that. Uh, Gerald yeah, Gerald French on drums. Uh, we add Andrew Baham on trumpet, and I mostly play a lot of clarinet uh, because, again, a lot of the music is traditional New Orleans music. But, again, it's still the same concept of we ha we try to have a good vibe and we have fun and we laugh and joke and whatnot. You know? And, again, that whole spirit. See, that's the spirit. A lot of this music, my, in, and even in my research at LSU, uh, working on my Ph.D., I have found... 100 out of 100 times that the jazz music always had an element of dance to it. Mm -hmm. When it was really became to be get popular, it was popular back in the 20s because it was a part of the dance environment. Right. And so um, when you have that energy, when people are dancing, it makes the musicians play differently. They're not just playing by themselves. And so we experience that all the time when people are really into the music that you're playing. It makes you want to deliver it better so they can have that. So it's so it's, it's a constant thing. So so yeah, so now of course there are some um that you know there is a concept that's that's known around that sometimes we need to get to the music and totally not worry about the audience. And again, I have been that, done that too, and that's cool. But I will say, when students exit from school, being able to earn a living as a professional, they're going to find that a lot of their income is going to come from being able to play for people at events, mm -hmm. at dances. Now, um, now, if you're independently wealthy and you can, don't have to do that, great. But as a professional musician, the, historically, jazz music has always had the element of dance associated with it. Right, right. It's a very good point. Well, look, it's, uh, 
It's always a pleasure to hang with yeah, you. Yeah, my glad I, I to be here. I always learn something, and of course, the music always is yeah, a blast. Man. Um, so thank you for coming. Yeah, absolutely glad to be here. Absolutely. And um, so you were showing me a tune um, that we're going to play the audience out on a New Orleans tune. This was written by Ed Frank. Huh? Yeah, Ed Frank. Yeah, great, uh, a great New Orleans piano player. Uh, I played with him many years ago when I first started trying to branch out and whatnot, and uh, this tune is called Fruit Punch, and I actually recorded it on this, uh, on, on, on the clarinet record I'm going to be putting out, and uh, it's a really great kind of funky R&B-ish type of a New Orleans thing, so, uh, so check it out. Hopefully y'all like it, y'all. All right. You count me into this thing. Yeah, I did indeed.
Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge would like to acknowledge our generous sponsors, the Shell Corporation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Office of Cultural Development, and the City of Baton Rouge. 